Well, good morning. I'd ask that you would grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. As you know, it's about halfway through the Bible. At the very end of the Old Testament, uh, you will find the four-chapter book of Malachi. If you find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're in the right area code. And uh, just turn back to the left a little bit, and you will find uh, right before the Gospels the book of Malachi. Well, we're in this series pretty much to the end of the summer, looking at four chapters of uh, God's Word. Now, we know that the text has told us that God is having conversations with His people. He's talking with the Israelites, and He's bringing seven uh, arguments, if you will, or uh, areas of uh, critique to the people of Israel. And we're going to get into yet again another one that is pointed towards the priests of those days. And so I'm going to ask, as our tradition is, to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in Malachi chapter 1, and we are going to look from uh, verse 6 into chapter 2, verse 3. So let's look to this text together. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You've defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hand, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so you would not light useless fires on my altar. He goes on to say, Uh, I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table, that it's defiled and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured and crippled or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations." Very quickly, before I have you uh, sit, after we read the last part of our text, remember what's going on. The priests are allowing bad sacrifices to enter into the Holy of Holies. They're bringing their disease, their crippled animals, and they're bringing what is uh, the worst of their flocks instead of what is their best. And now listen to what he says to the priest in verse or chapter 2. And now this admonition is for you, O priest, If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. 
Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. And I will spread on your faces the awful, that literally is manure or feces, from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to a text this morning that we sit back and we say, did God really say that? Is God, are you God that mad? Are you that angry with us? that you would uh, take uh, dung from animals and spread it in our faces. Lord, we, we don't read this very often in your scriptures, but we come to it as a text this morning. And Lord, we come humbly before it. Lord, it seems that your people were out of line. It seems that your people had no regard for who you were and who you are. And as a result of that, allowed their lives to be defiled by sin. And Lord, not just the people, but the leaders of the people of Israel, the priests, the ones who should have known better, Father, they defiled you as well. Oh, Lord, let us not look at this as just a uh, story from a couple thousand years ago, but that we would look at it as a modern message for today. We too have defiled your name. We too have brought uh, broken and uh, useless gifts to the altar. We too have hidden sin in our heart instead of bringing it before you and asking for forgiveness and grace. And Lord, we are a people. There are many of us in this place today who play around with sin, who keep sin as a quiet thing, and you say you're going to bring it out into the open and that you are going to bring it before us and before all the people. Oh, Lord, I pray that today that that private sin would be brought to you. Lord, we know that when we sin, we run the risk of our sin being made known to all the world, that our sin will find us out, the Scripture says. Oh, Father, that we would approach that throne of grace today and deal with it rightly with you unlike what the priests did, that we would pursue you and your righteousness and your forgiveness so that, as David says, that you will uh, not allow the sins of the youth to come back uh, before us in our adulthood. Father, I pray that that would take place today. I pray that we would humble our hearts this morning. I pray that we would confess sin and we would respond in a way that would bring glory and honor to you because you are the Lord Almighty, the one who deserves all the worship and praise and our best in all that we give. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Every couple months or so, Uh, I will share with the elders that the message is what I will call, and I've heard it from another pastor, an operation crowd reduction message. You know, Jesus had these kinds of sermons. When uh, he was talking to the people in John chapter 6, he uh, begins to feed the 5,000. And people are loving Jesus. They're excited about Jesus. They're saying, hey, let's make Jesus our king. He's the greatest. He does all these wonderful, great magician, uh, like magician acts, magical acts, if you will. And, and he's a great guy. We love Jesus. And we all love to see those sermons preached, the ones that make us feel good, the ones that, that tell us, man, Jesus is great. We love what the Word of God is saying. Man, He fed the 5,000, but we know the next day Jesus comes back and the people are looking for yet another meal. And they're excited. What new thing is Jesus going to do? Some of us have come today looking for a new thing that Jesus is going to do. And you know what Jesus does? He addresses them. 
Now remember, more than 5,000, many scholars believe 15 to 20,000 people heard the message that Jesus preached when he spoke about being the bread of life and he fed the 5,000 men in his midst. But the next day we see him sharing yet again. And they're looking for that same miracle. And yet Jesus starts talking and he says, if you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, then you are my disciples. And people say, whoa, wait a minute. That sounded a little weird. I'm not sure about that. And people began to leave. He even asked the disciples, are you too going to stay? There's numerous passages in Scripture where Jesus says that you should gouge out your eye. You should cut off your arm to keep you from sinning. And we sit there and say, ooh, I don't know if that's what I really believe in when it comes to discipleship. Jesus was an operation crowd reduction kind of pastor. He wanted to make sure that those who were following, those who were going to walk behind him and follow his ways were truly serious about it. I believe that today is an operation crowd reduction message. It is a difficult message. The uh, uh, disciples at one point said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? As I studied this week, Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, kept being shared back to God from your preacher. This is hard teaching. Who can understand it? Do you really mean what you mean when you say that, God? Is that truly how you felt with the people? I know many commentators didn't say much about this, and one of the reasons I think that they stay clear of it isn't because of the depth that it has, but I think they're afraid at times to articulate fully what it means and that it means something to us today. Many of you know that I run a catering business as a full-time job, that preaching is is something I I do at this point on the side. And if you want to know a day that stresses me is the day when I get a knock at the door at our offices and there is a person that has an emblem on their shirt with a metal clipboard. The metal clipboard will always tell me something that my stress level is going to go up. The metal clipboard means the health department is here for a surprise inspection. Now the health department comes and they go through everything. They make sure my refrigeration's working. If I'm cooking something, that it's at the right temperatures. They make sure my employees are washing their hands properly. They make sure we get our garbage out like we're supposed to. They go through 60 points of inspection. Now you say, why do they do that? Do they do that to make my life uh, more difficult? Do they do that so that uh, the government can say, well, you know what, we just want to keep track of the food businesses around? They don't do that for those reasons. They do it to protect you the community. If you think about it, you go and have one of five B's meals. And what happens if I don't have refrigeration? It's 100 degrees out. And those pork chops you guys love to eat, you uh, find out that, hey, something doesn't smell right. Something doesn't taste right. The health department wants to make sure that that never happens, that you have good food, that you're cared for, because we know if you're eating pork chops that have been out of temperature, your stomach isn't going to do so well, right? And as a result of that, their job is to keep me in line to protect you, the public. If you will, today, the priests get a surprise priest inspection. And there's a a whole set of rules and regulations that they have to follow. If you think about it, I'm in good stead. I'm in a good place If the health department says after they've gone through the whole inspection, you're doing what is right, they're going to speak highly of me. 
They're going to allow me to continue to do business. They're going to allow me to make money. I was overjoyed this last week. You know you're doing well as a caterer. I got a call from a local health department who's having a staff luncheon. And they called five B's. And I said, I know I'm doing well. I said, if you're calling me. Now, now I did say, I, I hope that I'm not a lamb to the slaughter. And I say, if I see everybody with thermometers, I'm closing the line down and I'm running out of town. But that's a good sign when the health department calls and wants to eat your food. The problem is, is when things go bad. If I'm not doing what is right, I will assure you the health department isn't going to sit there and be nice to you. They're going to become very angry. Because their name is on the line and you are their customers. I'm not their customer, you are. And as a result, they're going to deal with me severely. The priest in Malachi chapter 2 are given a surprise inspection. In Malachi chapter 1, he's dealing with the people. And he's sitting there articulating and I, uh, to the people how they have gone wrong. And I wonder if there was this sense by the priests that they're sitting there saying, yeah, God, you go get them. Yeah, you really lay into them, God. That's right. They're not following you. They're not loving you like you've loved them. But in Malachi chapter 2, he says, wait a minute. It's not just the people who are wrong. He says, this admonition is for you, O priest. I wonder if the clapping and the go, God, go got silent in the priest crowd. The ones that were supposed to know what to do. The ones who were supposed to articulate what God had required of them. They were the ones that now were being inspected. And God is very angry. They have failed. And he's going to bring down the hammer, if you will. Now you say, what does it do for me that priests got in trouble a couple thousand years ago? What is that to me? That's in the Old Testament. We don't have priests anymore. We have pastors and elders who uh, serve, and they, they don't have the kind of role. They're not the ones who make atonement for the people. We don't have to go through uh, Pastor Tim or Pastor Scott or Pastor Keith. We don't have to go through those guys. Why? Because we have one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He alone is our high priest. He is forever our high priest, the book of Hebrews says. But I want you to notice something which I shared a couple weeks ago, but it's been a little while. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter for a moment. Let's establish why we have to hear this message this morning. 1 Peter, if you're in the book of Malachi, go to your right to the last part of the Bible. After the book of Hebrews, you'll find uh, uh, the book of James, 1 Peter. And we're going to be looking at chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is what Peter says. This is in the New Testament. This is not just to the people of Israel, but it's for all of us. This is what he says. But you are a chosen people, a royal what? Help me out. What does it say? A priesthood. He says, you're all priests. Now turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, you will find Revelation, just a couple pages from 1 Peter. We're going to look at chapter 1, verse 6. Let's deal with uh, verse, uh, verse 4. 
to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, that's speaking of angels, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, speaking of us, who has freed us and who has uh, and who from our sins by his, who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now listen to what he says. That's the marks of a Christian. We're loved by God. We're freed from our sins by Christ. Now look at what it says. And has made us to be a kingdom. Remember what Peter said? You are a chosen people. You're a nation, he goes on to say. Now look at what John says. You are a kingdom. And what does it say then next? And what? Priests to serve his God and his Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Two passages of Scripture that delineate that we as Christians are priests. One of the key tenets of the Protestant Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. The big difference that Luther and Calvin and some of the other uh reformers had was that they understood the New Testament to say that there was no longer a priesthood distinction compared to the laity, that there weren't the priests, they were the ones that were the middlemen between you and God, that that was gone, and that every person that confessed and lived for Christ as Christians were to be priests. So what do we do with this text? When we see the text, we know that much of what is addressed about the Old Testament priesthood may not be there because of this age of grace that we live in, because Christ is the final priest through the order of Melchizedek, the book of Hebrews says. And as a result of that, we serve in the priesthood under our great high priest. So what do we do with Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? We listen. And we ask the question this morning, as we approach this text, we ask the question, are you right with God? If God was to come into your life this morning and knock on your heart, if you will, in front of everyone in this place and ask you the question, Tim, are you right with God? I may be able to lie my way through it to you, but what would the great inspector of the human spirit say about your life? I know there are things that I would not want addressed before a group of people like yourself. I know there would be attitudes, there would be thoughts, there would be pursuits and dreams that would go contrary to even the things that I preach about and try to live for. The Bible says that even the great apostle Paul did things that he did not want to do. And God was inspecting him and he says, I don't want to do that. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I really want to do, I find myself failing in. The question is this morning, are you right with God? It's not for your neighbor. It's not for your husband. It's not for your kids. The question is for you. Are you right with God? And if God was to inspect your life, what would he find? That's what we're going to look at in Malachi chapter 2. Now we see that they fail at this. The priests find themselves failing. What did they fail to do? He says in verse 2 of chapter uh, 2 of Malachi, he says, you did not listen. He says, you did not set your heart to my ways and you did not honor me as God. 
what they're saying there in verse 2 is the totality of their lives. You're not living like you're supposed to. What a message for us today in Western evangelicalism to hear this. We forget that God deals with sin. And we're going to learn how he does it. There are three things I see. And then I'm going to bring us back to a fourth uh, point that will deal with how to remove these things from us. First of all, when we fail to live godly lives, it may result in the following. Number one, it may result in the removal of God's privileges. It may result in the removal of God's privileges. Now, all throughout the scripture, Malachi addresses something that will be addressed throughout the scriptures. First of all, he says, I will uh, bring a curse upon you. I will send a curse upon you. Now, this doesn't seem like the loving God that we always sing about. This seems like God is angry. God's upset. But we know that this is something that is articulated in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you're in the book of Malachi, put your finger in Malachi and work your way all the way to the left to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament and of the Bible itself. We need to understand something. We need to understand what these priests uh, knew. And even though they weren't living that way, that they found themselves in trouble with God. There's something taking place. He says, I'm going to send a curse. Did God talk like this? Is this what God used to say to his people? Well, I want you to look and I'm going to ask someone to yell out for me the heading of Deuteronomy 28. What does it say in your Bible? And all at once. Blessings for obedience. I don't have any broken gifts for you this time. That's why no one wanted to share it. Blessings for obedience. 14 verses saying, if you obey, this is what I will do. Sounds like a uh, heavenly father, doesn't it? Son, if you obey me, then the following will take place. Not so much rewards of obedience, but the good fortune that comes from doing what is right. I didn't always get rewarded when I did good things or the things that my parents told me to do, but my life went well with me. For the individual who breaks laws, when a police officer drives by, there's fear in your heart, is the police officer here to get me? But if I've done and followed all the rules, then I can wave happily to the police officer and say, hey, good, good afternoon, good to see you. There's blessing. There's no fear. There's no trepidation that I'm in trouble, even though that many times wasn't the case when I was younger. Now notice what happens in verse 15. What's the heading above verse 15 in your Bibles? Curses for what? Disobedience. If you obey, blessing. If you disobey, cursing. And now for almost 50 verses, he declares the curses. Look at what he says in verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, listen to what it says. All these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city. You'll be cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading 
trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and you'll be cursed when you go out. Now notice what he says at the beginning. If you follow all the, obey the Lord your God carefully, follow all his commands I'll give you today, the Lord your God will set high above all the nations you. And all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and your young and the young of your livestock, the calves and the herds and lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading, all will be blessed. There's an understanding that when the people followed God, God blessed them. He allowed his floodgates to be opened up of goodness and peace and mercy. But when they disobeyed, there was, if you will, an opposite reaction. Everything that he blessed, he now said he would curse. So we need to understand what this word curse means. We need to understand that it's an Old Testament word that means that God will send evil and punishment and judgment upon upon an individual who is living in disobedience. We also need to know that this word curse in the Hebrew literally means to ban someone. That is to remove a person from a place of blessing or to remove a blessing from a person. So there's two forms of cursing. Number one, we live in disobedience and God says, all right, I'm going to remove blessing from your life. Some of you are wondering why things are happening in your life And you have to ask a couple questions. First of all, is it as a direct result of sin in your life? You have to ask that question. Because the Bible says that he will deal with our disobedience. So things like illness, things like uh, um, emotional duress, things like trials in your life, we must ask the question. But that's not the only question we ask. If it's sin, we need to confess sin and we need to bring it before God. Another thing that may be happening is that God may be wanting to grow you. It may be a trial for your growth. The book of James says when trials come, you consider them joy because they're going to produce character and perseverance and endurance and hope. So it's not always just because you've gotten a bad report from the doctor or your kids are out of line doesn't mean that someone has sinned. Remember what happens when Jesus is walking with his disciples and his disciples come up and they bring forth a, uh, a blind man who, uh, who was blind all his life. And the question is, who caused this? Was it his sin or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. It's that my name would be glorified, that God would be brought glory. But one thing we always do with our trials is always go to that, this is God trying to grow us. And we rarely go to the question, is it as a result of sin? Now you say, Tim, this is in the Old Testament, and it doesn't mean it like it means it for us today. I want you to turn to the book of Galatians for a moment. Galatians chapter 6. You think this cursing and blessing has left us because we're Christians, we're under grace? That this doesn't involve... Uh, the things uh, that it involves us today like it did them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. I'll I'll just start in in verse 1. It's all good stuff. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may yourself be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
Therefore, each one should uh, test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to, to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Now listen to what it says in verse 6. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. So do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What is Deuteronomy 28 saying? You live in disobedience, you will reap curses. You live for obedience, you will receive blessing. Look at what he says. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap what? Destruction. The one who sows uh, to the Spirit, to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. If you're living today in disobedience, the Bible says God will not be mocked. He's not going to sit idly by and say, oh, it's too bad Tim's living for himself. Uh, you know, especially he's a preacher. He should be living differently. He says, I will not be mocked. Don't think you're going to get away with this, Tim. He says, you reap for the things of the sinful nature, you'll be destroyed. Your life will be destroyed. And we've seen it. Does that mean God zaps us? No, that's the great uh, common grace that is bestowed upon the world. God does not deal with sin as he could, as severely as he could. He lets us live. And some of us have been enduring under the, the common grace of God. And yet we know that at some point God will deal with it. He says he will discipline those that he loves and temporal uh, destruction will come upon us. But it says if we sow to obedience, then good things will happen. We'll reap eternal life. Now notice what takes place here. The priests are cursed. And as a result of that, two things take place in their lives. First of all, this curse involves their personal experiences. Their personal experiences. God curses the priests. He says, I've brought a curse upon you. Not only upon you, but I've cursed your blessings as well. In the Hebrew, that's a very difficult statement to understand. That I have cursed your blessings. Have you ever had a blessing become a curse? Have you ever had something that started out so great and started out so wonderful and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, it just goes bad? It goes really bad. And whatever good it brought, it brought more evil or more destruction in your life than the good that ever came of it. I haven't used the cub illustration for a while. I'll use one for you. I was so excited so many, some years back when Carrie Wood and Mark Pryor are doing their great things and the Cubs of the early 2000, I think it was 2001, are working their way all the way to the World Series until they're in, uh, I believe it's game five, that they're playing the Marlins. And I'm enjoying it. I'm loving being a Cub fan. It was a blessing that year to be a Cub fan. That doesn't happen very often. But what takes place? The great curse, if you will. That bonehead, Bartman, what happens? He sticks out his head. I know you're already offended I used bonehead. Okay, you can live with it. That, that guy, Bartman, sticks out his glove. Moises Alou tries to catch the ball in foul territory. He can't catch it. He throws his glove to the ground, and the train derails. And what was a blessing became a curse. I didn't even want to watch it anymore. I was so aggravated. I was so upset. I wanted to take my TV and chuck it out the back door. It was done. Whatever was good became evil, became uh, a place of disappointment in my life. Now that is on a small scale. 
some of us find ourselves that our blessings have become curses. And you sit there and say, why is this going on? What Malachi is saying is it's because of the priest's sin. Now notice what takes place. He curses the priest, and what he's saying to them is, you are unfit for ministry. And so I'm removing the blessing from your life. They lived a blessed life as priests. They were taken care of. The Levitical priesthood, which we'll learn about next week, was taken care of. They served the Lord, and people paid for them to live, to have homes, to be able to do all that they needed to so they could focus in on serving God in His temple. And they lived blessed lives. They were taken care of by the people. But notice what happens. They're being told, no effective ministry is going on, so I'm going to rid myself of you. This is important for us as Christians to remember. As Christians, if we begin to start living ungodly lives, if we start pursuing sin instead of obedience, I will say this. Number one, we believe wholeheartedly that if you are truly saved, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. God will never get rid of you. I think it was neat. uh, Leon Morris, a commentator, said that just like Christians, the priesthood was something you always had. Whether you were qualified or disqualified, you were always known as a priest. Why? Because the tenure of a priest was lifelong. It didn't have to do with what you had done to become a priest, but the covenant that God had with you and your ancestors is what made you a priest. And so it's very similar that the Christian does not lose his position, nor did the priest, even if he went on sinning. But the Bible says that we will know whether we are true believers or not if we obey the commands of God. So if you are truly a child of God, you don't have to worry that your, your uh, salvation is at stake. But what we see is, is that sin brought God's displeasure. It said that his fellowship with his people was disturbed. It talks about also in the scriptures that our service to God is marginalized. Our Christian life is damaged as a result of sin. Instead of having peace, we have a world of trouble. Instead of having freedom, the book of Romans says in chapter 6, we're put back into the bondage of sin. And the book of 1 Corinthians says that we forfeit heavenly rewards. You want to live for sinful desires? You want to pursue those things and call yourself a Christian? First of all, it's going to bring question whether or not you're a believer, not because of your position, but you have to ask the question, does a Christian live a lifelong lifestyle that's contrary to what the Word of God says? No matter how many times you've walked down an aisle or rose your hand or filled out a card that says, I'm a Christian, you have to ask the question, am I truly a believer? If you are, then the question is, why are you living the way you are? And you have to understand God's displeasure, his fellowship, all those things are going to be damaged as a result. But notice what else happens. We also see public expressions. It doesn't just happen in their personal life, but in their public expression. A man by the name of Moore said this in a commentary I read, uh, ministers cannot sin or suffer alone. They always drag down others with them when they fall. Is that true? How many of you have seen a Christian leader? How many of you seen another, I would change that word, not just to be ministers, but Christians? How many of us have heard when a Christian has fallen and the damage it does to the testimony of the Christians all over the place? 
We don't have to think long, not long ago, last fall, when we heard about a prominent uh, leader in the Christian church. He had a big church out west. And what happens? He's accused of, of doing drugs and he's accused of homosexual activity. And we say, no, no, that, that can't be the case. That can't be the case. And then he comes out and he says, I did. That's, those were the things I did. And he leaves. Did it just involve him? No, it involved anybody who calls on the name of Jesus. Why? Because when Christians fall, they bring down others as a result. What are the priests doing? They find themselves sinning, and as a result of that, the testimony of the nation of Israel is defamed. Don't ever think that when you sin, whether it's in private or not, if you have any kind of involvement, if the world knows you're a believer, if they find out what you've done, it will bring disgrace, not just to yourself, but to the whole lot of Christians around you. When we sin, we put at risk the testimony of the church. I've told you time and time again, the greatest burden of preaching on a Sunday morning is not so much the actual preaching of it, but is me standing before you as a sinner just like you, knowing that my life has to be set, not perfect, but set in a way that I can stand and boldly preach the Word of God. And the greatest fear I have, my wife knows it, many of my close people know it, and you will know it as well, is that I will fail God and in turn fail you as a body. Because if I go down, there's no question that the name of God will be defamed as a result of it. But that's not just for preachers, that's for all of us. When we fail, it changes our public expression of that faith. Well, what happens next? We see repercussions from God's punishment. What does God do? Look at verse 3 of Malachi 1. It says, and now this admonition is for you, O priest, if you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, I'll send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessing. Yes, I've already cursed them because you've not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. Let's stop there. The first thing we see that is a repercussion of God's punishments, it may include a firm rebuke. God says, I'm going to rebuke you. This word rebuke means to chastise. It means uh, a severe addressing, to address someone harshly. In our vernacular, it means to really get yelled at. God is angry. And like a heavenly father, just as my father did, and as I do with my children, he raises his voice and he says, I am not happy with you. That's what he's saying. I'm rebuking you. You're not doing what I've told you to do. And as a result of that, there's a whole lot of pain and suffering coming. And that's usually when my dad started going like this. Okay? Those on the CD will not know what I'm talking about to save my dad from any DCFS troubles. He would go like this. And that meant a whole lot of pain and suffering was coming. Well, how does God rebuke us today? Does he send a prophet to address us harshly to scold us? Or does he share through the conviction of the Spirit? That still and small voice in your heart when you're, when you're turning to things on the computer that you shouldn't be, when you're speaking words that maybe shouldn't be coming out of a Christian's life, when you're putting things into your body that the Bible says you need none of that, you should not be drunk with wine, but be living in the Spirit. And the quiet voice says, hey, that's not right for a Christian to do. When I left the house as a teenager, 
I very rarely, but should have, because I caught into much trouble as a result of it. My parents would say, remember who you are. My mom's last words were, remember who you are. It would be good for us as Christians, as we walk out of here, as we go into our world and do the things that we do, to remember who we are. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. We are Christians. And we are not to live in the ways of sin, but we are to pursue righteousness. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, stop doing what you're doing. Do you understand how important this was for the priest to hear this? It's true for us as well today. The priests were the ones who were to speak against sin. The priests were the ones who were to bring down the hammer. The priests were the ones who were to always make sure the people were right with their God. And yet they're the ones getting yelled at. You say, well, I'm not a priest, but you are a Christian. And you know what we're to do? We're to announce to the world the trouble with sin. We're to announce to the world the damage that sin brings. We, are na- we announce to the world that the wage of sin is death. And yet at times, God is not yelling at the world, but he's yelling at his own children. And he's saying, you've forgotten. You've forgotten that when you sow to wicked things, you will reap destruction. And just like the world, we are being articulated by the same God, the same words of judgment. God is saying, stop living that way. Now, why do we do that? We do that because we have a theologically skewed idea of a wonderful doctrine, and that is the doctrine of eternal security. Why do we live this way? We live this way because we say, hey, once saved, always saved. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. All that is correct. But that doesn't mean that God isn't going to deal severely with people. He's going to deal with us as his children. He's going to discipline us. He's going to bring temporal judgment in our lives. I've seen it. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it in our church. And I've seen it outside of the church. I've even seen it in my own life. When I fail to deal with sin, God brings discipline. And I will tell you what, it is better to confess it and get it out into the open than to let God begin to uh, drill it out of us and let it come to the forefront. Our eternal security doesn't give us this idea that God is easy on sin because we believe everything that the Bible says that the unbeliever will heed if he does not heed the word of God will find himself in a place of destruction. We too as believers must understand that if we do not heed the word of God that is life to us, we will heed discipline which will tear our lives apart. We'd rather deal with it with God than give it to him to move on. But we see that it results in uh, a firm rebuke. But notice what else happens. Uh, it goes on and it says, a firm rebuke and a variety of other far-reaching and negative results. There's other results that take place. He says, your descendants. He says, I will uh, rebuke your descendants. Well, what does that mean? The Hebrew word is very vague. It doesn't tell us exactly what it means. This word, your descendants, literally in the Hebrew would be our our English word seed. Seed, S-E-E-D. We're not sure what that means. The Hebrew word could mean the following. It was used in the Old Testament to speak of your arm, to speak of children, to speak of family, to speak of crops, and to speak of tithes, giving of your resources. So what are we to do with that? I'm not sure which one is best. One commentary said that it's vague for a reason. 
All of those things are at risk. When the priests were living the way they were, all of those things were calamities that could fall upon them. If you've ever uh, lived a life of sin, if you've ever fallen to sin, which all of us have, we know that our lives, because of one little white lie, can wreck our lives. And we say, well, nobody will find out. Let me share something with you uh, I learned a couple of years ago. I was catering an event up in Batavia. And uh, there was this kid that kept pestering me. I was on the grill that event, and this kid kept pestering me. He was a skateboarding kid, and he was talking kind of funny. You know how skateboarders talk. You don't always understand what they're saying. He was bothering me, and I, I didn't want to talk with him. And then I figured, you know what, I'll have a little fun with this kid. And so, like I do sometimes, I exaggerated with him about all the skateboarding accolades that I had. This big guy. And I said, if he, because he kept telling me how great he was as a skateboarder, I said, well, you know, I got this great big skate park in my backyard, and the only skateboarder I know is Tony Hawk, and I'm like, yeah, he comes over all the time, and this kid is eating it up. He's nine years old, I think, and he's like, man, that's awesome. I, I got to come see your house sometime, and I never told him where I lived. Nothing. The next day, I'm worshiping with God, loving the spending time with you as a church, and this is before I'm a preacher, just so you know. Uh, I was a Sunday school teacher, though, so I'm still under God's judgment. I get home, had a meal, ready to relax, and there's a knock at my door. And there's that kid. It just so happens he is the nephew of my neighbor. Be sure your sin will find you out. The kid says, hey! What a coincidence! Where's the skate park? I had to say, and I'm, I'm telling you this, in front of my neighbor, in front of the whole family that he was, I had to go over there and tell them that I had lied. And I had to tell them that I had lied and what it did with my relationship with God. Some of us say, no one will ever know. What are the chances of that happening when you're a Christian? They are very, very, very good. And maybe you're sitting there today and you're saying, ah, that will never happen to me. There are a variety of far-reaching and they always seem to be negative results. He says, I'm going to curse you and your descendants. What does that mean? It could mean a variety of things. How is God going to deal with us? In a variety of ways. He may deal with you in one way and your neighbor in another way. God doesn't have to do things all the same way. He can bring calamity and discipline into our lives in any way he wants. There's repercussions. Look at David's sin. David has a one-night stand with a woman named Bathsheba. And as a result of that sin, not only does he feel guilty about it, but after that night, he loses a child. He goes on to murder her husband. There's a disgrace of the Israel nation. There's trouble throughout the life of David in his family. His one daughter is raped by her brother. And then a son, another son, goes out and sleeps with one of David's wives. All of them, the Bible says, are as a result a curse that is placed on David as a result of his sin, a man that followed after God who was after his heart. 
there's repercussions to our sin. The Old Testament says that our sin, the sin of a father, can reach the third and fourth generation. Does that mean that God is going to waylay your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren because of your sin? That he's sitting there waiting, I can't wait till Noah's a grandpa because of what Tim did, that Noah's grandchildren, they're going to get the baseball bat and the beating of a lifetime. That's not what that means. Don't ever use that and say, God's going to go after you and he's going to waylay your kids because of the sin that you had. What that means is, is that sin has a way of being so pervasive in the life of a human being that it can find its way generations later that that same sin, that same issue that happened in your life can find its way generations after you are gone. So when you are looking at something you shouldn't be, you need to be asking the question, what happens The thing that I've learned is you take a stone, you throw it into a quiet lake, what happens? Ripple effects. One stone falls in and it ripples. And the bigger the stone, the bigger the ripples. You need to ask the question, when we pursue sin, what's the ripple effect? If I start living ways that I'm not supposed to and I throw that stone into the water, what's the ripple effect? My relationship with God is tarnished. My relationship with my wife may be at risk. My relationship with my children and the integrity as a father may be gone. My opportunity to preach and proclaim the word of God may be disqualified from me. My ability to be an elder may be gone. My good standing in a church may be gone. My name in the community will be taken away. We as Christians don't think about that, but we throw these rocks into the lake and we say, oh, nobody knows, nobody cares. And we never sit around to watch how far those repercussions go. We just keep throwing those stones into the lake, not wondering what happens to them. There's far reaching and negative results. Next, we see a rejection of godly purposes. This is where it gets really gross. God's done with them. He has no use for them, it says. In verse 3, because of you, I'll rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces uh, the feces, the awful, it says, from your uh, festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with them. What is God saying? Is he really that mean that? I'm going to spread the dung of the animals on your faces? We need to understand the context of what God is saying. We know that when all, things were brought to the altar... They would clean, they would cut open the animal, clean out all its innards, sorry ladies, clean out all the insides of it, their intestines and their feces, all of that would be taken out. And they would be cleaned before they were placed on the altar. All that garbage was then taken outside of the city and put into a pile. I don't know who cleaned it up, if it just kind of became compost or what, but there was even a gate when the temple, or when the uh, city walls were built that they had it and it was called the dung gate. All of that garbage and refuse and excrement went out one gate. Why? Because it was gross. It smelled. It defiled anybody who was around it. And so what is God saying to the priest? He said, I'm going to take that garbage. I'm going to go out to the outside the city. I'm going to pick it up in my hands. I'm going to bring one of you old priests around. I'm going to hold you in the back of the head. And I'm going to take it. I'm going to smear it in your face and get all that garbage all over your face. You say, well, I don't know if that's my God. Well, it's in the book. And we preach verse by verse. That's what it says. He's taking this and he's spreading the feces, it says, in the face of the priests. What does this mean? Well, dung, we understand that dung gives a picture of defilement. We know that dung also means uh, not only defilement, but God's utter disgust for the sin that they've brought. 
It shows the uh, defilement of sin, the disgust that God has. But also this, it also represents the level of humiliation that God wanted to bring on the priest. You say, you mean God wanted to humiliate the priest? Look at verse 11 of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, not 11, verse 9. Verse 9. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways. God says, so what am I going to do? He's going to take this garbage. He's going to spread it in the face of the, of the priest. What does that do? The face represents everything that the world knows about you. You know little about me because I'm covered. What do you have full exposure to, thank God? Only my face. So what is God saying? He's saying, you know, you're all dirty all everywhere else, but you've covered it with your nice robes and your flowery words. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that garbage that is part of your life and I'm going to spread it in your face so everybody can see how dirty you really are. And for a priest, that disqualified them. They had to clean themselves in such a way their robes had to be perfectly clean before they went and made sacrifices. And what happens? He says, I'm going to spread it in your faces. And as a result of that, you're going to be humiliated. It's going to represent your defilement of sin. And as a result of that, you're going to uh, be brought to a place of utter disgust by your God. But you know what? You say, what a terrible thing for God to do. I'm going to share something with you that I saw in this text as I began to ponder it. What a picture of God's grace. Aren't you glad that God brings our sin before us? Aren't you glad that God opens the door that our sins are brought out? That through the conviction of sin, we can deal with it? We don't want our sins to go unconfessed. We don't want our sins to go undealt with. We want to deal with them. And if you're a Christian, you want that to happen. We don't always like how God does it, but we should see it as a grace that God allows for healing to take place. It's like a broken bone that never gets set. It'll never be right unless God, the great physician, sets that bone so it can heal. Likewise, bringing our sin before us allows God's grace to move in our lives. Well, it represents one other thing, and that is disqualified service. He says, you'll be carried away with it. What he means by that is when they clean out the animal and take it out to the refuse pile outside the city, what he's saying is, is take the priests with them and throw them out there on the manure pit. Throw them out there. You're useless. Nobody needs you anymore because you have done things that have defiled me. There's disqualified service. They're no longer needed. It was said in one of the commentaries, one who no longer experiences God is one who will no longer be employed by God. You want God to use you? You want God to do great things in your life? But if you're not experiencing God and you're not doing what God says, you better believe God's going to put you out in the unemployment line. He's going to say, I don't need you. I don't need you to be doing anything. I'd rather you just close the doors and stop giving me gifts or offerings because they're not worth it. You say, well, how does that work with us? Priests were disqualified. The Apostle Paul says, I run the race in such a way I beat my body so that I do not become disqualified in 1 Corinthians 9.27. We as Christians can disqualify ourselves. But notice the final thing that happens. What a great word in chapter 2, verse 2. That word, if. If you want to circle that sucker, that is important. If. This idea is is that it's not done yet. It doesn't have to go this way. And now this admonition is for you, O priest, if 
you do not listen. And if you do not set your heart to honor me, then I will send a curse. And it already had begun. This word, this phrase here, if, and this whole passage is saying that time is short. Change your course of action. And there's a way we can change it. You see, these three consequences of sin can be remedied through godly practices. Let me close with it, with this. First of all, you don't want to live that way. You don't want to pursue sin. You don't want to find yourself wreaking the havoc that comes with God's discipline in your lives. Then first of all, begin hearing God. He says, if you do not listen. If the priest had been listening, they would have heard, I love you. I've always loved you in chapter 1. They would have heard earlier on the warnings about wrong living. If their ears would have been opened up, they would have heard what God had to say with them. I've written down, listening is the first step towards right living. When my son screws up, I have to look at him. And sometimes I got to hold his face and say, are you listening? And he's, yeah, daddy, I'm listening. And he's not listening. And I know what's going to happen is as soon as I let him go, he's going to go and continue living the way he was. But if I get him to listen and understand what I'm saying, then right living can come as a result. That's why James says, be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. The book of Hebrews says that we ought to listen to the instruction lest we find ourselves drifting into sin. The book of 2 Timothy says that we are to listen to the words that were articulated by the apostles so that Timothy would then have a pattern of rightful living in 2 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. First, it begins with hearing God. Second, it begins by hungering for God. If you do not set your heart, literally it means your passion, your drive, your desire. If you're passionate about things of sin, then you better believe God is going to discipline you as a believer. He's going to, and it already may have begun, and you may not know it. What he's saying is you're not passionate about me. So what do we do? We begin to hunger for him. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Can you say that as a believer today? Amongst all the sin and all the pleasures of the world, just as Moses did, I would rather not pursue those things for a short season and leave those aside so that I can pursue God and all that he has to offer. Are you hungering for God? Finally, are you honoring God? Verse 2, you honor my name. To honor my name, Malachi 1.6, honor God as your father, honor him as a master. How do we do that? As dearly loved children, we are to live lives worthy of the calling we've received. We are to live lives as imitators for God and honor him in that way. So let me close with this. Maybe today you're a believer and you're just finding yourself deep into sin. And that dung, if you will, is all over your face and you're scared to death that that's going to go public, that all the world is going to see it, and it may still, but there's still time. There's still time to go to God and ask for forgiveness. You know, there's a story in Zechariah chapter 3 where the high priest Joshua is standing before God and Satan is accusing him of all kinds of wrong living. And what happens? God says he's defiled. He's wearing dirty clothes. And the devil says, how can he be your priest? And God says, take that clothing off him. Give him a white robe. His sins have been covered and his defilement has been taken away. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. What is that cleansing? The defilement, the cleansing of all unrighteousness. 
How about the unbeliever in our midst today? Maybe you've been living for yourself all these years and now you're understanding God is serious about you living for yourself instead of living for Him. The great thing is, is that we no longer have to live as the priest did with humiliation and with the defilement of sin around us, but we can turn to Jesus who makes our sins whiter than snow. Bow your knee to Jesus. A hymn says, Have your affections been nailed to the cross? Is your heart right with God? Do you count all things for Jesus but loss? Is your heart right with God? Do you have control over self and of sin? Is your heart right with God? Over all evil without and within, is your heart right with God? Is there no more condemnation for sin? Is your heart right with God? Does Jesus rule in your temple within? Is your heart right with God? Are all your powers under Jesus' control? Is your heart right with God? Does he each moment abide in your soul? Is your heart right with God? Now listen, this is the grace. Is your heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood? Cleansed and made holy? Humble and lowly? You're right in the sight of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you. And we are a sinful people. But Lord, we rejoice that there's forgiveness. We rejoice that there is love. That there is compassion. And Lord, we come and we humbly approach your throne of grace with confidence. Asking for redemption. Asking for uh, forgiveness. And Lord, I'm so glad that you came and that you died for sinners like me. And as a result of that, we may be washed. So Lord, I pray for the one here today who's never experienced the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would know that they can find forgiveness. And that you take our sins and you toss them as far as the east is from the west. You make us as white as snow. And Lord, you come into our lives and you change us and you mold us to make us like your son. And Lord, I also pray for the believer in our midst who's trying to live for you, but maybe has fallen uh, in some areas of sin. And maybe today they feel humiliated in their own lives, that they know their sin is before them. And Lord, I pray that you would work in their lives, that they would confess sin even now and get right with you so that as a result of that, they can go on in true fellowship, that they can go on with confidence as they proclaim your name, that what they say will not bring an affront to the people around them because they say, I know how you live and yet you call yourself a believer. Lord, we know you're serious about sin and we want to be serious about it as well. So we give it to you in Christ's name. Amen.